Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Lamentations 3, 21-32 I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. So I say to myself, The Lord is my inheritance. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who depend on Him, to those who search for Him. So it's good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And it's good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for hope may come at last. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. For no one, no one, is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, yet he shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. That's the word of the Lord. Yeah, good. Oh, Tom, thank you so much for sharing God's word with us. Uh, As promised, today I'm going to preach the worst sermon ever. Um, Actually, uh, it it will be a tie for the worst sermon ever, because Jesus preached the worst sermon ever a long time ago. And when sometime 30-ish years ago, I heard the Lord speak to me and call me to be a pastor, what I agreed to do was to preach and teach what he did. And that means that because he spoke the message to an audience earlier that I'm going to preach to you today, I just have to. We're finishing up, almost, a series of sermons that sprang from my personal Bible reading several months ago. I kept running into this word, other. And every time I did, it was like it would stop me and give me some awareness that that I had not had before, though I've read the Scriptures many times. And so this series of sermons that we've been working on for these last few weeks together have really been strung together loosely by just this one word, other. It's this thing that you hadn't noticed, but now is is called to mind. And so several weeks ago, we talked about the man who had that withered hand, and and in the synagogue, Jesus healed him right in front of everybody. And it says that his his hand that had been so withered and, and paralyzed stretched out and was strong and sound, just like the other hand. And we talked about how we are the the other hand, because it shows what can be, and it offers hope to everyone whose life is a bit more like this. Remember that? Then three weeks ago, we talked about other in the sense of uh, Jesus' kingdom being an other kind of kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. And it, it isn't governed by external regulations, but it's governed from the inside, from your heart, and, and how God changes you so that your heart literally becomes 
good instead of turned in on itself, and you can begin to live from there instead of from some external uh, code of laws. And all of a sudden, your life is characterized by goodness, by peace, and by joy in the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we talked about how Jesus made this regular habit of going to the other side of the lake. The other side of the lake was this phrase that that uh, always signaled that Jesus, who had been um, teaching and preaching and healing and traveling and took a break now and again, just said, I need to go be with my father. And he took some time for some just God and me time. I've been hearing from some of you this week about how that that message in particular from Jesus' life woke something up in you or woke something up in you again. And in this last week, you've taken some just God and me time and how it's nourished your hearts. Thanks for sharing those messages with me. That always encourages me to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, as I looked at Jesus' use of the word other, I also ran into the worst sermon ever. It's one that no one wants to hear. No one wants to believe. Absolutely no one wants to put it into practice. It's one that everyone wants to explain away and wishes that Jesus had never said. And as I was reading the scriptures, I ran into it again. And honestly, I wanted to avoid it. There's a lot of material in the Bible to preach. I could have skipped this one. But I found myself wanting to avoid this passage And that reminded me of a very important spiritual lesson that I should probably teach to you today as well. It's this. When you find yourself wanting to avoid something, it is very likely that that's something you need to face and humble yourself before. So, since I didn't want to hear it, I needed to preach it. That sounds awfully selfish. Like maybe... The sermon is just for me. But as I lived with this passage for weeks, this last week I sat down to work on it. And I I asked the Lord to help me. And I sensed his Holy Spirit coming. And I found myself physically shaking, just not, not sickly, but The presence of the Lord was in the room. Now, I will freely admit that as I speak today, there will be some things that are from my lips. I can't pretend that every every word and every syllable of this is, you know, thus saith the Lord. But I trust the Holy Spirit to help you sort out which part of it's me and which part of it's him, but I know there's part of it that's from him, okay? Um, here's the message. As I was wrestling with it, I found out that I was, in fact, wrestling with it, and it was a wrestling match that I'm supposed to lose. I'm supposed to get pinned. I'm supposed to give in and give up and let Jesus win in this struggle, and so are you. Most of us do not do well in this department, so today here comes the worst sermon ever, but I'll preach it with just this one promise, that at the end, I'll be the guy at the altar who's asking God. To forgive me, cleanse me, and change me. You can join me there if you want. But how you respond is up to you, and I mean that. I've spent time with the Father on this topic, and I know, I've come to understand, that our our church as a whole needs to learn this lesson. 
and needs to live it with excellence. And we're not doing that yet. So that's why I'm going to teach it today, really. But how you respond is between Jesus and you. All the same, I have some hopes, and those hopes stem from what I know can happen when a group of people who take God's word to heart humble themselves and ask him to go to work in their hearts. Simply do what he teaches. There's a passage that uh, kind of fits with what Tom was reading earlier. It's from the Jesus story according to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. About 10 verses. If you've been around church much, you've heard it before, and that is risky. Because when you hear something often enough that it becomes familiar, all of us have a tendency to just go on autopilot for a minute, get through the Bible reading, and then get on to the other stuff. And I would just say to you today, would you please tune in for the Bible reading? And if you tune out after that, way okay. Because these are God's words. This is Jesus speaking, and he said, But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind. He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think this is the most despised, neglected, disregarded, and disobeyed of all of Jesus' teachings. We wish Jesus had never uttered these words. We want the freedom to indulge our hurt feelings. We want the freedom to give a people a piece of our minds when they deserve one. We want the freedom to secure justice for ourselves, and immediately so. We want the freedom to vent our anger and to call it right and holy and good. We want to explain away this controversial teaching or ignore it altogether. But Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. If we are his followers, we have to consider the possibility that Jesus meant exactly what he said. Don't we? 
What does this phrase mean? As always, biblical scholars take words and phrases and shred them. I read all of that stuff this week. There seems to be about three opinions. One of them is that it's just Jesus meant it in its most literal way, that if somebody pops you in the kisser, let them do it again. Another common interpretation of the passage refers to uh, some, some cultural practices among the Jewish people of Jesus' day. And uh, those folks say that it might have been one of two possible things that Jesus was talking about. That some, similar to being, um, you know, having someone spit in your face in our culture, to be struck upon the right cheek was just the chief insult. I don't have to say anything to you. I can just, and you get the message. So does everyone who watches. But there was also a practice in the Jewish synagogue of Jesus' day that kind of took that highest insult into the theological world, and they used it against people who arrived at wrong conclusions about what God's word means. And so as they studied the the teachings of the rabbis and the interpretations of the scriptures, local synagogues many times would would, would come to uh, follow more or less the teachings of one rabbi, and, and they would be unified in this little town around their interpretation of scripture. And if anybody disagreed... If anybody said, mm, I don't think so, and began to, to speak something that the rest of the crowd disagreed with, that person could be put out of the synagogue. And being put out of the synagogue isn't like in our culture where you say, well, fine, I was going to go to another church next week anyway. There's one synagogue. And when you're put out of the synagogue, you are cut off from God's people, and you are cut off from his grace, and you are cut off from his mercy, and you are cut off from God. It was the way that your church family told you to go to hell, literally. And they would say it without saying it. By taking you before the synagogue, giving you a chance to change your mind, and if you didn't, it would strike you on the cheek, and you had to take your things and leave. Which of these interpretations was Jesus really intending? I have to be honest with you and tell you, I do not know for sure. And neither does anybody else. Because he didn't interpret the passage. He just said it. When that happens, it leaves those of us who want to be followers of Jesus and want to, to believe, understand and believe his word and then conform our lives to it. It leaves us in a precarious spot. Because we either have to guess what Jesus meant and none of us feels real good about that. Ignore what Jesus meant or work harder to find out what Jesus meant. I suggest that we work hard this morning. And I want to, I'm going to teach you two principles of interpretation. Now, write these down because I spent thousands of dollars for these in seminary, okay? I had to pay people to teach me this, okay? Um, here's the, the first principle of uh, scriptural interpretation. Context, context, context. Always read widely around the verse or the passage. See if that helps you understand this thing itself. I think this, that helps us a little bit. But the second principle of interpretation is also very important, and it's this. The most apparent meaning of any passage of Scripture is the most likely meaning of that passage. The most apparent meaning is the most likely meaning. 
In other words, if, if there's something that is obvious and right on the surface, we don't have to set that aside and say, what did Jesus really mean? Dig, 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 word study, word study. Look into the culture, look in. If it's apparent, we should give that the first consideration. And Jesus said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. I think that comes in handy when somebody insults you. I think it probably came in handy to these Jewish followers of Jesus who were very quickly going to be put out of their local synagogues because they were following the teachings of this controversial rabbi. And I also think it might exactly mean what it appears to mean, which is when somebody treats you horribly, when someone attacks you in whatever way they do, we, the followers of Jesus, are supposed to respond not with self-control, but with generous hearts that are glad to give people better treatment than they give to us. Listen, that's either make-believe, pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff, or that's what the power of the Holy Spirit can do in the lives of the followers of Jesus. He really can make it possible for our hearts to be so changed that it's possible for us to love our neighbor when our neighbor does not love us. Maybe I should just end the sermon now and say, go love your neighbor, especially the mean ones. Or maybe you're the mean neighbor. I don't know. Why did Jesus say this? Why is it so important that I make a big deal about it being the worst sermon ever? There's a handful of reasons that I want to share with you today, and I think they are all very, very important. Let me just, let me just dive into them. Here's the first one. It goes like this. Why is it so important? Why change our ways and begin to live like this? It's because it's one of the few unmistakable signs of the kingdom of Jesus. There were unbelieving people who were watching Jesus do what he did. They hadn't yet bought into the idea that he was the, the, the great rescuer that God had promised to send. And as they watched him, they were amazed by him. And they were amazed by Jesus for a few reasons. It wasn't for his looks. The scriptures tell us that. It wasn't because of his outgoing personality. Not that, because sometimes Jesus spoke very sharply to people and offended them. It wasn't because of his royal lineage, because he'd moved around and people thought nobody from his hometown is from the royal line. And it wasn't because his family was prominent, because his family wasn't. People were drawn to him for other reasons. They were amazed by his teaching and by his miracles, and then ultimately by the manner of his death. Everybody's amazed by miracles, so we're going to throw those out for just a minute and say, why is it that the unbelieving people, the people who hadn't yet bought into Jesus being the, the grand fixer, what is it that they were so amazed by? It was by the things that he taught and then the manner in which he died. And Jesus taught that people should not counterattack, let alone take vengeance when they are attacked by others. And then he lived it. He lived it in the most extreme application of this principle. He turned to the other cheek while they were beating him senseless. You want to be known as a follower of Jesus? I know in the end, when God sorts everything out, the scriptures say that he'll, 
He'll, he'll gather his followers to himself, and those who aren't his followers, he'll make that apparent too. Do you want to be known as a follower of Jesus in this life? Being Republican doesn't mean you'll be known as a follower of Jesus. Equal laughter, please. Being a Democrat doesn't mean you'll be known as a follower of Jesus. Being white and middle class and safe to be around does not mean that you will become known unmistakably as a follower of Jesus. There's a handful of things that if you put them into practice in your life, people will go, he belongs to God. She walks with him. And one of them is if you turn the other cheek when people treat you poorly. If you return anger for anger, just like everybody else. If you return hatred for hatred, you're just like everyone else. You can say what you want to about loving Jesus, but people won't believe it. If you're as mean and vindictive as the next person who is mistreated. It's an unmistakable sign of the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus taught that we should turn the other cheek when people do us wrong. And then he showed us what it looked like. A second reason that that this is so important that Jesus taught it and, and so important that we should follow it is because it's the gospel in action. The word gospel means good news, and when you say good news about what, the New Testament consistently used the phrase good news to mean the good news that the kingdom of God is no longer a future promised prophecy kind of thing, but it's come to earth, and you can be a part of it, and you can lay hands on it today. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come, and the good news of the arrival of the kingdom isn't really very good news if it doesn't mean that there's a change in the way that people live. The good news of a kingdom is make-believe if people aren't changed by the kingdom. Who needs a new kingdom when all it means is there's a new king but nothing changes? That was not a political statement, but it'd be a pretty good one. The good news of this kingdom is that when the king comes, he changes the heart's of the citizens. The kingdom's arrival among us is good news, and part of that good news is that in his kingdom, Jesus changes the hearts of the citizens, and their changed hearts end up changing their actions. Turn the other cheek is not some ridiculous rule. It's not some impossible feat. It's not some admirable but impractical add-on to the Christian faith. It is the very substance of life in Jesus' kingdom. It's the second half of the good news. The first half is this, that Jesus has come into this world to forgive and to change people so that they can have a full life. And the second half of the good news is this, changed people change how they treat people. Amen? I'm going to say it again. Maybe put this on bumper stickers. Changed people change how they treat people. Why practice this? It's also because it's the, it's the absolute epitome of love. You remember what love is, right? We've studied it before. Try to memorize this definition together. Say it with me if you know it. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense, by the help of the Holy Spirit. 
We practice turning the other cheek because it's the absolute epitome of love. Put simply, love says, I prefer your well-being over my comfort, and I prefer your well-being even over my own well-being, and then proves it. It's others-centered living, and that means that no matter how you treat me, and no matter what it does to my feelings, which may go nuts out for just a second, there's this value in place in my life. There's this belief in place in my life that I, that I confess to myself every day, that I coach myself to believe and, and to live. And it stops me from hurting you just because you hurt me. It brings me to the place where I pause for one second and I'll wait for the Holy Spirit to get a good grip on me, on my tongue, on my lips, on my hands, on my attitude, look on my face. Just because you did me wrong, I find that I no longer have reason to do you wrong. What I have instead is the very love of God poured into my heart and it comes splashing out on you. It's the very epitome of love. Last reason is this. Why would we believe this? Why would Jesus teach it? Why should we try to practice it when it's so hard? It's because we trust God. We trust him to bring justice eventually. The scriptures teach that at the end of time, God himself will will balance the scales of justice. What wrongs you have suffered, they will be made right. Do you give thanks for that today? It also teaches that when you've done other people wrong, it'll be made right for them. God has promised that in the end, nobody is going to get to scream, nor will anyone have to scream. That's not fair. Because he'll make sure that justice is worked for the peoples of this earth. That's good news. We trust God to bring justice eventually. It's kind of tough to wait for it. Amen? Yeah. But we can also trust God to walk with us in the here and now through the worst things that people can do to us and say to us. We trust him to use the painful things to polish us. We trust him to bring amazing endings to stories that started very poorly. We trust God to show patience with those other people that we want to get back, just like he shows patience to us in our failings. And we trust that in the end, he will use wise judgment in knowing whether he has to bring vengeance upon them or whether he can grant them forgiveness like we hope he will for us. And so we wait for God to work because we trust him. And we wait for God to work and to decide what he has to do rather than us going out and bringing justice ourselves in the here and now. Why? Because we trust him. Told you it's going to be the worst sermon ever. I think if I turned the manuscript into some preaching professor, I'd probably get a passing grade on form. But boy, the content is not very enjoyable. I believe this to be one of the two most difficult to obey passages that Jesus ever taught. Stay tuned, because I'm going to preach the second worst sermon ever in a couple of weeks, okay? It's hard for everyone to accept this teaching because we want to defend our right to defend our rights. We want to 
act in our own interest, and we don't want anyone to put any limits on that. We prefer the idea of getting even and and calling it justice when it's really only motivated by selfishness and anger and hatred that comes from our hearts. And if we're completely honest, there's some place deep in our hearts where sometimes it feels good to think that other people are hurting because they hurt us in the first place and they deserve it. Fair's fair. And if we're really honest, we probably have to admit at some level, we are probably worried that God's not going to come through for us. He's not going to protect us. He's not going to avenge us. So it would seem that we have a little problem today. Self-problem. Trust problem. Faith problem. Don't we? This week I searched for a video clip to help illustrate this teaching. The best that I found, I could not show in this place today. It's far too coarse, the language far too abusive for it to be appropriate. It was a monologue by television host Bill Maher, an atheist who takes great delight in ridiculing Christians and political conservatives, and he has a strong dislike for both of those kind of people. His mean-spirited rhetoric usually gets me mad with inside one minute, so I usually don't watch him very much very long. But this week, I just was searching for videos on Turn the Other Cheek, and guess who popped up near the top of the list? You got it. He said Jesus was very clear about being kind to others and about not striking back when others strike us. He said that considering how clear Jesus was both taught and lived this principle, his followers really should consider turn the other cheek to be one of the biggies in Christian life. He said that it's written down in the book that we're usually holding when we scream at certain groups that we consider our enemies. We can read it. And he said that if we are not willing to obey the teachings of Jesus, we are not Christians Then he said he personally loves vengeance. It's one of his very favorite things. Because like most Christians, he's not a Christian. You feel the weight of that? He said, you see, I have the luxury of loving vengeance. I'm not a Christian. Just like most of the Christians I know. Somehow that man has gotten into his 50s and been surrounded mostly with Christians, you take care of number one, baby. And you do me wrong, you on the list. Cold shoulder, hate mail, you know. Hmm. Can you imagine what would happen if just one church started trusting God enough and loving our neighbors enough that we actually started self-governing our speech and our attitudes, and we started living according to what Jesus taught us. Can you imagine how different Facebook would be if people turned to the other cheek instead of posting vague rants about people they hate, refusing to give names to their targets, 
Imagine what might happen if, if all of us who are seated here started dragging our commitment to be kind to those who are against us into our political speech. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what might happen if we only forwarded or, or shared internet messages that exhibited kindness? That that was the one measure. If it's unkind, it's out. Can you imagine? First Naz would be like, um, like a city on a hill. Whose light could be seen from every direction. We would be like, like salt. They gave a whole new flavor to Christianity and to the people of the LC Valley. I used to be a police chaplain. I used to break up bar fights because I was a police chaplain. And in Whitefish, it means you go uh, to the bars a lot. I've been in bars way more than you guys would be comfortable with as your pastor. Uh, I broke up a lot of bar fights. But my life has changed since I've become your pastor, and it just time-wise, it doesn't allow for chaplaincy. I hope one day it will. But between that fact, my, the change in my life, and the way that you all live, I just haven't had to drag many of you out of bar fights, so that's a good thing. Most of us uh, make good decisions, good enough decisions that we, 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 we don't often find ourselves in the position where we're having to hit back because somebody hit us first. But we know that the teaching of Jesus extends beyond the mere exchanging of punches, don't we? Don't we know that its teaching really goes and addresses the issue of the totality of our treatment of one another? How we speak to and about one another? The attitudes that we harbor? Don't we know that this teaching extends into our homes and into this sacred fellowship called His church. How do you think we're doing there? About a dozen years ago, there were 500 people who worshipped in this room every weekend. And knowing what pastors know about attendance patterns, it means that there were at least 700 people who called this place their spiritual home. Somehow, conflict came to be the rule of the day. And it wasn't just the people who left, was it? Some of them left because of unbearable unkindnesses that they suffered in personal relationships here with us. Some of them lost the ability to turn the other cheek because some of us refused to turn the other cheek. I know that I was not your pastor then. And to some of you, that means that I have no right to talk about those things in those days. But I'm the lead pastor here now. And as I have prayed for insight into our church, God help me to know this group that I'm supposed to pastor. I've asked him to please help me understand who we are. So I know that compares how that compares to who we can one day be and how to get there. And I've come to learn that we have some sins in our past that have scarred us 
and which have hampered our ability to be believable representatives of Jesus to our communities. The fact is, I've met too many people in our towns who don't think very highly of Jesus because of the sins of our church's past. There's a lot more people who used to go to this church than there are people who currently do. I'm not going to dwell on the past any longer. We're facing forward in faith. We're leaving those days and some of those patterns of relationship behind, intentionally so. And in order for us to leave those hurts and those broken relationships in the past, I think two things have to happen. The first is this. We have to humble ourselves and decide that from this day forward, this will be a place of peace where the contention is just gone. A place where people can expect that they will be treated better than they at times deserve. And I think we will also have to take this collective sin of ours to God in confession and make a request for forgiveness and cleansing from it so that we don't stay in this sin. Collective sins are one thing, personal sins are another. Maybe you were not a part of this church's contentious past and all this stuff I'm talking about today is mystery to you. Thanks be to him. Maybe you were instead part of a family that used to be really tight but now has been blown apart. Your your family's been the scene of many a vindictive argument. Maybe school and social media have been the arena where you've been giving people what they deserve in exchange for the hurt that they've given you. I do not know. But wherever it is that you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to you today, I want to gently warn you. God means business in this area. He calls us to be like Jesus, who, when treated badly, offered blessings and peace. I said that, you know, application's up to you, and I meant it for almost everyone. Um, church board and ministry leaders, You lead us very well in so many ways. No exaggeration, no flattery. I have never worked with a more capable group than you. I want to ask you if you could perhaps lead us today again in an act of genuine repentance by coming and kneeling at this altar. I want you to leave some things here. Help us leave some things here. Old wounds. I want you to lead us in, you know, admitting that we've been holding some things against people and treating them like it. I want you to lead us in asking God to change us. It's been a pretty rough week for me. 
because God has shown me my sin. And that's why I said what I said early on. Is that I'll be one of these guys down here. And uh, as I close the service today, I'm going to just ask that if the Lord's speaking to you, only if, and you know that he's saying, man, this has got to change in your life, then why don't you come and find a place at this altar or at these first couple of rows, and why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I honestly don't know how you did it. I mean, sometimes I keep my mouth shut, but most of the time I answer. And when people made up lies about you and accused you, you just stood there trusting your Father. When people struck you, you didn't even act defensively. But I have. And honestly, Jesus, it seems like I have a right to. I mean, it seems like it's just. But you came to teach us that there's something that's far better than justice. It's mercy. We've cried out to you for it many times. Today we're asking you to give us enough mercy to give to those who have wronged us. I know there's people all over this valley that have made us mad, have hurt us. We've said things like, you burned a bridge. Father, forgive us. All the bridges in the kingdom are fireproof. When we accept forgiveness of our sins, we obligate ourselves to become like you. And we need some help. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would come today. Hear this prayer I'm speaking and the silent ones that are being whispered your direction all around this sanctuary today. Lord, I want to pause before you for a moment and ask you to just go over the record, peer into our hearts, If we've been assuming the freedom to do to others exactly what they do to us and all the time asking you to be just nice and good and kind to us, why don't you search our hearts and we'll just listen. I suppose, Jesus, that if we have had occasion to turn the other cheek because other people have treated us poorly, there's probably some people, some other people, 
have had occasion to need to turn the other cheek because of what we've done to them. We'll just get quiet before you again and let you speak to us about that. Father, please forgive us. Please cause your spirit to work strong in our hearts. Now, quite frankly, we need him to work fast because uh, anger usually flares up pretty fast. So what we're asking of you today is for you to, uh, to go big and to help us to get little. So that in times of conflict, it's not ego and self and flesh that asserts itself. It's the Spirit of God who goes strong, quiets our hearts, helps us not to be afraid because we can trust you to take care of us, balance the scales of justice, do all that. Help us to look with compassion upon those who treat us poorly. They must have had a really rough day. We do not know their private hurts. Master, make us like you. Your word says that if we somehow find through you the ability to bless those who treat us poorly. That it does something in their lives too. Proverbs said it's like heaping burning coals on their head, and that sounds a little addictive. So um, we're not asking you to do that. We're just asking you to change the hearts of those with whom we struggle. Can you work in both of us, Lord, so that we can be unified by the bond of peace? All that past stuff, Lord, would you just put it under the blood? Keep it there. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Prince, thank you for uh, listening. I told you from the get-go, um, not a fun sermon, not one where you go home saying, boy, that was awesome. Everybody, make sure you listen to the podcast. Maybe it wasn't for anybody but us here today. But I want to thank you for taking seriously what God's Word teaches us. And I want you to know that uh, if you live around me for long, I'll probably, just because of me, give you occasion to practice this. <laughs> You think we can be good to each other by the power of the Spirit? Do you think that's possible? Because I do. You think we can continue to be good to each other even when we slip up once in a while? Because the other person in the equation is full of the Holy Spirit and His power and His love? You think we can live like that? Because I think we can. Stand with me, please. Only by the power of the Spirit 
but by the power of the Spirit. May you go this day in peace, working peace, into the lives of everyone that you meet. May you especially know the presence and the peace of God in times of conflict. Go in his love. Amen.